Hello, and welcome to Sunflower Sutras. I'm your host, Tara. To start things off, I would like to read A Musical Instrument by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. What was he doing, the great god Pan, down in the reeds by the river, spreading ruin and scattering ban, splashing and paddling with hoofs of a goat, and breaking the golden lilies afloat with the dragonfly on the river? He tore out a reed, the great god Pan, from the deep cool bed of the river. The lipid water turbidly ran, and the broken lilies a dying lay, and the dragonfly had fled away, ere he brought it out of the river. High on the shore sate the great god Pan, while turbidly flowed the river, and hacked and hewed as a great god can, with his hard bleak steel at the patient reed, till there was not a sign of a leaf indeed to prove it fresh from the river. He cut it short, did the great god Pan, how tall it stood in the river, then drew the pitch like the heart of a man, steadily from the outside ring, and notched the poor dry empty thing in holes as he sate by the river. This is the way, laughed the great god Pan, laughed while he sate by the river, the only way since gods began to make sweet music they could succeed. Then dropping his mouth to a hole in the reed, he blew in power by the river. Sweet, 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 O oh Pan, piercing sweet by the river, Blinding sweet, O oh great god Pan, the sun on the hill forgot to die, and the lilies revived, and the dragonfly came back to dream on the river. Yet half a beast is the great god Pan, to laugh as he sits by the river, making a poet out of a man. The true gods sigh for the cost and pain, for the reed which grows never more again, as a reed with the reeds in the river. And now for something a little bit different from what we've been doing previously. I have a handful of books that I've been reading recently. No shame that I'm plugging friends of mine. Almost all of them, except for one, are written by friends of mine. But I'd like to take the opportunity to talk about these books and check them out for yourselves. First, I would like to talk about a book that was released not too long ago by the Lawrence poet Macy Webb. It's actually her first book of poetry called Crying at Walls. It's a hard read, especially as a friend of hers, but I think even from an outsider perspective, because of the topic at hand, it's a bit of a concept book. It's this intimate walk through what is essentially a nightmare. The book is Macy's tool to deal with this horrible event of watching as her lover and life partner is slowly degenerating from a disease and inevitably the loss of this person that's so important to her. I love the esoteric nature of her individual grasping with facing death, and specifically the spiraling death and action of a person you care so much for. 
What I find most comforting and, in fact, needed in this collection is the manner that she vehemently, like, steers away from romanticizing death, romanticizing the idea of watching your partner slowly leave you. And she writes these poems in the moment as well. These aren't just reflections with years of healing. These are everything from on the way to doctor appointments to right after memorial service. These are heartbreaking confessions. There's no concern about ease. It's everything from eccentric musings of grief to these personal verses of imagery inside her mind I will never be able to comprehend. As a reader, as a friend, this is one of the most personal collections of poetry I've ever read in my life. What I admire as a person who has also lost someone close to them, but also as an artist, is how difficult it is and how much you can see that she puts effort into her trying to maintain a tether to humor and art appreciation as a means to keep sanity. And you see how much more of a struggle that is throughout the book. It is a progression from experiencing Jessica's illness to seeing it get worse to eventually losing her and finding out that grief is not a tidal wave so much as a swamp that you just walk through. There's areas where you drown and there's areas where your toes are a little wet and there's nothing more than that. And it's just such an honest collection. I think a line that stands out really strongly to me, and the sun shines and the grass grows and wind tells secrets to trees, though I can no longer hear them. It might come across as simple to some people, but to people who have gone through that kind of pain, it's just the kind of words you need to hear in that moment. The human equation is not abandoned in this poetry. It's evident in the refusal to take out dates that are incorrect. It's, it's kind of a, a thing I found very admirable. On page 21, because none of the poems actually have names, they all go off of dates. But on page 21, it's January the 6th, and it at first says 2015, but it's crossed out for 2016. It's little details like that. It just feels like such a personable book. And one last line really stuck out with me, and I think any person who's going through grief. I am in public, but I am not currently fit for public. I can't believe that it's her first book, because she's such an amazing poet. And on one hand, it hurts that her first full-length collection has to be on such a harrowing topic. But on the other hand, I think it is a wonderful display of her talents that this is the first full-length book that she can produce. Now for our next book from 
the man who is currently our Kansas Poet Laureate, Huascar Medina, How to Hang the Moon, which was published in 2017, sold out of its first run, and then is going now through its second print. First and foremost, I just have to say that this collection contains one of my favorite poems. You know, scratch that. It contains my favorite poem of Medina's, Don't Marry Giants, which is a poem about Sylvia Plath and specifically about her tumultuous relationship with Ted Hughes. And it opens up with a quote from her diary, actually from the day that she met Hughes. This piece perfectly lays out Medina's cheeky but deeply sensual nature. He discusses going back in time and getting purposefully caught in an affair with Plath so that her marriage to Hughes would disintegrate and she wouldn't spiral down her inevitable depression that led her to her suicide in the hopes that in an alternate future he could open up the New York Times and read a poem by Plath about him. And I'm not going to spoil it because it's just so cheeky and cute. But the first time I ever heard this poem, I've heard plenty of Huascar's poems beforehand. I knew how talented he was, how captivating he was as a storyteller, uh, especially as a person who cares so much about romance. But that poem in particular, oh, I love it so much. It's a small collection that is the ravings of a hopeless, romantic, Spanish lover trope and a hardened modern cynic with damn fine imagery, duking it out in the same shy, but not really that shy, but shy mind. It's too easy to say that it's all about love and it's too easy to totally dismiss it because it's mostly poetry about love but i honestly believe that medina has this personal twist to his poetry that i've not read love poems like this before it's on the topic of the tropes and how he turns them around he takes mythological imagery and classical ideas about romance and about courting and he just completely flips them around in this kind of dark and magical and even more seductive manner that I think is beautiful. I think is even more beautiful when you read it with all of the Spanish alongside it. I think that it's it's a fun read, but it also definitely doesn't shy away from the pain of loving someone, especially someone who is unrequited. And I think that that is probably the reason why the first round sold out and now we're on our second round. So I highly recommend that you give How to Hang the Moon a look and maybe we'll get it on a third round of publishing. Next up on my list is a book that also came out earlier this year, roughly around the same time actually as Crying at Walls, The Park by my friend James Benger. Benger has such a way to turn every one of his poems into the kind of stories that buddies passing beers or grandpas bouncing babies on their knees would recite. 
It's what I love about his work. It's so story-driven. It's stories that thrive off of the constriction of length that poetry provides. It's, it's gritty sentimentalism, but most importantly, it's these humanizing snapshots into the folksy domestics of individuals that our society frequently shuns. People that media portrays as ugly and trashy. The people around the trailer park. Like Macy Webb's collection, this is also James's first full-length solo book. It's got this complex truth with individual narratives. Every poem is a different character, a different actual human being from around the trailer park. Individuals that are tragic, that are humorous, that are probably caricatures of people that James grew up around, that James was shaped by. And the most beautiful part about it all is how much he respects every character, regardless of how they might even respect themselves. Overall, the feeling that I get after finishing this book is a genuine nostalgia that doesn't have the baggage of lying to oneself about how good everything is. I would like to now read a couple of my favorite lines that really stood out to me. From the titular The Park, the boy fires off his neon orange plastic water pistol. Small crack in the seam of the handle keeps his palm perpetually wet with lukewarm hose water. From those nights, she punched her card in the outdated time clock, feet reminding her just how long she'd been there. And then this one last line, just to give you one more taste of the kind of imagery that James likes to conjure. Cops traced him back to the park. When asked, no one had seen him for weeks, but no one had realized they hadn't seen him for weeks until they were asked. It's the kind of stuff that I eat up. It's, it's a fun read, but it's not necessarily fun in a completely, I don't know, harmless manner. I really like this book, and I really want people to give it a try, especially because there's a lot of socioeconomical baggage attached to what he's trying to discuss in this book. And I think he does a damn fine job of tackling the kind of stigma that it's discussing. The next book that I've recently finished is Tracing Ghosts by Cal Louise Phoenix, released in 2018. It's a bit of a smaller collection, not totally unlike How to Hang the Moon, but it's one of those books where you're going to reread it and reread it and reread it, and you're going to be thinking about these verses, and it's going to catch you in the back of your mind, and you're just going to find so many meanings. It's this collection of gothic tribulations and just utterly blunt confessions. It's, it's attacking oneself. It's trying to find defiance. It's the fear of abandonment and then the reality of abandonment with the shock that life goes on even after the hardest of times. It's the kind of personal struggles that 
a woman just wanting to be loved feels. It's beautiful, but it's also disgusting, but it's so disgusting on purpose. I can't get enough of this book, to be quite honest. There's this one passage in particular that I would like to share to give you a taste of Phoenix's writing. Upstairs, I stay, sitting on the master bed, plucking webs as they collect from my eyelashes, and wear out our fantasy like a shadow, though it bleeds to ripple my draperies with a sticky shame that keeps my wrists and tongue in captivity. This book details travel and love and lovers and lust and pouring oneself into other people even if it's not returned and in the expectation that it won't be returned. It's so uniquely feminine and bluntly woman and I've not seen something discuss so much about the suffering that one feels so deeply inside to the point that you can't share it with other people without actually putting that suffering on a pedestal and in fact trying your damnedest to crumble that pedestal to pieces. It's a harsh book and I think that's what I admire so much about it. All in all though, I think that it's a memoir piece which is a little bit humorous considering that currently Phoenix is working on her first full-length memoir. I think it's important to consider that Tracing Ghosts, most certainly, is a memoir of itself. I think it's a beautiful read. I think it's a must, honestly. That is the last four shameless recommendations for books by my friends. Now I'm going to discuss a book that I promise I could never have been friends with him because he died not too long ago and he died before I even knew he existed, so... There's no way that we could have been friends. I mean, if he was alive, then sure. An indigenous writer who hated the government, of course, uh, we could have been friends on that basis alone. But uh, this is a book I picked up from a bookstore having a going out of business sale. So a bit morbid, but I got 50 books for $20, and this is one of them. Walking the Res Road by Jim Northrup. Published in 1993, this collection is a bit unique to Northrop's typical writing. He was, by and large, he was mostly a columnist. So having this collection of poetry, I think, is a really special thing. Northrop parallels himself in the character Warm Water. Both Anishinaabe, both Vietnam veterans, both working class men. The collection has both the personal poetry of Northrop alongside the narrative of Luke Warmwater as he returns from Vietnam and sees that things aren't different just because he's a hero now. The book obviously tackles matters such as racism and life on a reservation, but it also has in the character of Luke Warmwater a humorous but solemn portrayal of the realities for soldiers who came back from Vietnam. I think that because of the lack of glory with that war, especially with my generation, we don't quite understand just the kind of despair that that was. We didn't win that war. Atrocities occurred. These men came home to 
these mediocre lives where no one understood them, where no one for many decades would understand things like PTSD. And on top of that, this character has to deal with systemic racism and has to deal with these perceived notions of things like alcoholism and a lack of intelligence and the the traumas of boarding schools and every section of Warm Water's story discusses another facet of the hardships, like the prospect of, hey, I just risked my life for this country and now you're telling me I need to go find a job? Ideas like trying to maintain a balance between involvement in larger society and maintaining one's roots, in particular for warm water and for Northrop himself, the use of Ojibwe language, which is sprinkled throughout the book. There's actually a glossary at the very beginning, which um, I hadn't known a single word of Ojibwe beforehand, so I, I learned a lot from this book. But it's got that indigenous humor, that very particular kind of, I dare say, snark. I'm going to read now a passage from Rezkar. It's 17 years old. It's been used a lot more than most. It's louder than a 747. It's multicolored, and none of the tires are brothers. I'm the seventh or eighth owner, and I know I'll be the last. Another one that really struck me. A lifetime of sad. She's 50, alone, and drunk. She has pride in her language, but no one to talk to. Another passage from one of his poems in the book. I am Anishinabe. In the spring, we spear fish. Res government wishes we wouldn't. It makes some white people mad. That's par for the course. They've been mad at us since they got here. Rednecks try to stop us with threats, gunfire, and bombs. The book has so many lifetimes that I will never experience in it, but it also has so many things close to home, and there's just not enough discussion about indigenous poetry and indigenous poets. He passed in 2016. I read up all about him after I read this book. I would have never known about him if it wasn't for going out of business sale. And that's kind of ridiculous to me. Jim Northup, Walking the Res Road. Please seek it out and give it a read. And now is the time for our listener submission. This submission is from poet David Estringle. David is a poet and writer of fiction, creative nonfiction, and essays. His work has been accepted and or published by Spectre Magazine, Literary Jews, Foliot Oak Magazine, Terror House Magazine, Expat Press, 50 Haikus, Little Death Lit, Down in the Dirt Magazine, and many, many more projects. He is currently a contributing editor in fiction at Red Fez, an editor, writer, and artist in residence at the Elixir Magazine, Fiction reader at River's Edge, poetry editor at Fishbowl Press, artist in residence at Cajun Mutt Press, and columnist at Chinillo. 
David's first book of poetry and prose, Inedible Fingerprints, was published by Alien Buddha Press April of this year. David can be found on Twitter, at the Man and at his website, davidaastringle.com. Blue Room Nights are hardest to bear. Alone atop these unwashed sheets that smell of you and me still, crinkled and heavy with ghosts of our sweat and loving juices, I am tethered to flashes of smiles and kisses that linger beneath the sweetness of heated exhales. To smell your breath again and taste you on the back of my tongue, to pull you into me by the small of your back and sink into the warmth of white musk, a tangle of tongues, fingers, and limbs. To have you, know you, again, inside and out, is all I want, need. Laying here, drowning in us, my legs brushed against the cold rustle of sheets you left behind, cutting the airlessness of this room. Rolling over, I close my eyes and sink my face into the depths of your pillow, escaping the void that even silence's ring has forgotten. And take you in, drowning in us, this lover's kaddish. The scent of your hair, blue fig and oranges, and spit are but pebbles on the gravestone. That poem was previously featured in Former People Journal. Old filament, broken bulb. A white bolt from above rips through the clouds before our eyes, an epiphany, showering cuts upon the kitchen table, releasing bad blood, testing our guile and gristle. Previously published in Expat Press. Kiss me again, again, and again. The coppery taste of meat beneath your sweet breath lingers like a penny on the tip of my tongue. Heads or tails, can't lose, lucky me. My equilibrium's fucked raw and my hands drink in the warm curvature of your hips. Oh, glorious spit, a little dab will do ya, streaked red and hot, never take me from this place, leaving me haunted by the ghost of that breath, your heaven, your hell, that leaves me quivering. Words can't capture what's smeared on this cheek by fingers sticky and sweat, so why try? Kiss me again, again. And again, in that white muslin dress of thigh-stretched daisies that roll and grin like morning shadows, smiling at secrets hidden in dark places. Previously published in Terror House magazine. And lastly, blue sky through bare branches. I look upwards at blue sky through bare branches, the dewy wet of cold green grass on my back, clinging, sinking, pulling me further away from this place. I long for the stillness of being found only in the shedding of this meat that plants me here. Oh, to touch those spaces in between, to graze my lips upon the azure skin. 
oh, albeit kiss. Like a stone skipping across lipid pools, let me caress the face with my lips and sink into your oblivion. Your everything. But I am bound here by bare branches between me and the beckoning sky, biting my lip to taste blood. I long to smear red what God has painted blue. And that piece was previously published in Foliate Oak Magazine. Thank you so much for your submissions, David. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by liking us on Facebook or donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash sunflowersutras. We'd like to give a special thanks to our patrons, Poet Jen Harris, E. Campson, and Heather Aranda for helping us keep this show running. If you or someone you know has some poetry that they would like to submit to the show, feel free to submit to us either via our Facebook, or you can submit the pieces directly to me at tara.bartley at yahoo.com. So long, and farewell.